The Athletic. Hello everyone, I'm Danny Kelly and this is The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Mighty Athletic. I'm joined today by The Athletic's Jack Pitt-Brook and James Moore as we build up to return to the Premier League and Spurs' game against Leeds on Sunday. But first, before we get into uh, the game against Leeds, uh, James, on Monday's uh, podcast we were discussing Harry Kane getting close to breaking England all-time goals record. It may happen even sooner than we thought after his performance against uh, Sam Marino, I think you were at the game, uh, Jack. I was at the game, yeah. Uh, Kane scored, what, four goals to go with the three that he scored against Albania on Friday night. So an amazing international break for him. I have to say, I thought the game was a disgrace. I thought it was it was just so bad. It was just not a football match, really, in any, in any kind of conventional sense. It was, you know, if England had played Dulwich Hamlet, they would have got a better game. And if they played Dulwich Hamlet, I could have walked home or got the 484 bus. But, Depends. Um, if they played Dulwich Hamlet away, you could have walked home. But if it had been at Wembley, you would have probably still had to get it. If they played Dulwich Hamlet at Wembley, yeah. I, it would have been a long walk back to Nunhead. But it was, yeah, I just think that, I, I know that when you when I say this, you get called uh, elitist. And I understand that. But I just don't see the, I, I don't really see the competitive value in these games taking place. You know, you just mentioned uh, Stockport and Bolton in the FA Cup. In the FA Cup, Tottenham go in at the third round. You know, everyone has, obviously everyone has a right to play in the FA Cup. You know, the the dog and duck, they have a right to play in the FA Cup, but they don't have a right to play Tottenham Hotspur. You know, if you're if you're a tiny little club, a tiny club as small as, for example, Kingstonian, if you want or, to play Tottenham, or Marine, let's say, to, to or, pick or a club, Marine, completely yeah. random. Marine had to play like seven games. Yeah, I probably think, more to play uh, Tottenham. Yeah, probably seven, seven or eight, eight yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, playing teams at different levels. Now, I'm not saying the World Cup should be World Cup qualifiers should be like the FA Cup, but I don't think that everyone has a right to play everyone else. And I think that when people say, "Oh, it's elitist to say that," well, I think, well. To an extent, like elitism is part of what we're looking for because it's competitive international sport at the highest level. Like the World Cup is an inherently elitist activity. You're finding the best football team in the world. And it's not like we should, you know, be allocating who plays in the World Cup by Tombola out in pursuit of fairness. Yeah, you only have to look at, uh, at the fact that San Marino over the last, what, that they've been a member of FIFA for, I think it's 30 years now. Mm. And they would have been in sort of 15 qualifying campaigns. And they haven't improved in that time they're still getting yeah. beaten five six seven eight plus every single game you know it's a similar story with you know andorra who haven't been around for quite as long but they're still getting beaten by big score lines more or less every match as well and then there are one or two others who are it kind of down the bottom of the rankings in europe who just don't seem to be making any progress what you want is teams at the same level playing each other with the possibility of some reward at the end of it this is um going to be far too hard for Jenny Infantino uh, to implement. I would have a, a separate tournament for all the teams who are, you know, the, the bottom half of the teams in Europe, and one of them would qualify for the World Cup. You still get your dream of the World Cup. You go to the World Cup and you get beat 10-0, but you're getting beat 10-0 in qualifiers anyway. Other federations have it. Other federations have pre-qualification. It's just UEFA that has this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. And of course, South America, because of the because yeah. of the, the particular small numbers in that federation, where there everybody plays everybody else, and that didn't used to be the case either. And it's this time round, have been very lucky in South America that it's only led to a handful of dead rubbers towards the very end of the tournament. But often, because of the way that was a league, 
and the you know country be playing thousands, flying tens of thousands of miles to play games that are absolutely meaningless. I think without going Arsene Wenger on this, they need to have a look at this qualification. Having said all that, and I agree with both of you, having said all that, Kane's seven goals in two internationals, and people can devalue the, the, the opposition as much as they want, but everybody plays everyone, you know, that kind of thing. What we're seeing with Kane, and I've, I've got to be careful here because, as you know, I was in love with him. Then we had the summer, and now I've learned the dangers of being in love with people who might be looking uh, to leave you behind for the fitness instructor. Um, is that this boy, this man, he is a great player. Um, and what's happening now is he's just destroying records that I thought would stand forever. Did I think that any Bunny Spurs player ever surpassed Jimmy Greaves' goals for England? He's gone sailing by, albeit in rather more games. He's now got the most competitive goals for, of any Englishman ever. You know, people talk about these goals against, being against San Marino, but so were some of Wayne Rooney's, so were some of Gary Lineker's, so were some of Bobby Charlton's. He's going to break the England record. He's going to smash the England he's record. He's going to smash yeah. the he's gonna, smithereens. He's yeah. five goals behind. He's going to get it before the World Cup. He's going to pass so far beyond that that I don't think the conversations about him scoring loads of goals against San Marino are really going to matter, are they? No. And by the way, you know, yeah. Lineker kind of alluded to this on Twitter the other day. And he scored, I think he scored four goals in a game against Malaysia, who, you know, are kind of nowhere now in footballing terms. And I suspect back then in the early 90s, we're even further off the top. Yes. And teams like, say... Turkey, who we would now deem like a really strong sort of competitive mm. team in European football, they qualify for major tournaments fairly regularly. Back in the late 80s were just, you know, a, a dreadful side who, again, would be one of those teams who would lose five or six every single game. So, you know, I, I, there have always been bad teams in, in qualification matches. And just because like the status of some of those nations has changed over the last 30, 40, 50 years doesn't mean that some of the games at Lineker and... Charlton and Greaves and whoever else are playing in weren't easy as well. All through the season, we've been wondering, like, to what extent are Kane's issues physical and to what extent are they mental? Now, I think there's, you know, merit on both sides of that argument, but I don't think the mental side should apply anymore. You know, he's got... I don't think he can complain about being unmotivated anymore because he's now managed by, what, the third best manager in the world. Uh, you know, Daniel Levy has matched Kane's calls for ambition in the best possible way. I mean, I don't know exactly how confident he's feeling right now, but he he's just scored seven goals in two games for England and he's looked pretty happy and confident doing so. So you'd imagine that he feels more confident. So in that sense, I don't think he can have... I'm just not expecting to see any kind of sulkiness or mopiness or any of those things that are sometimes attributed to Kane and that maybe we did see a bit at the start of the season. I don't know if he's kind of... Conte level fit at this point but I you know I certainly think he will get there if he's not because of the training that Conte will put him through so I'm I'm bullish about Kane's prospects over the course of this season Danny I think he will end up with 20 plus goals for Tottenham I'm feeling good about it what I find quite interesting and I think it's actually a thing you mentioned on on Monday Danny is that in these two games Kane hasn't been playing as like you know, the number 10 dropping off and trying to play all these through balls and trying to create goals for other people. He has been like in the penalty area. And I think, you know, obviously he's got a couple of penalties uh, and a couple of relatively routine tappings. He's got a couple of quite good goals as well. The volley was in great. The penalty the yeah, vo- yeah vo- a good, very good volley against Albania. And I think, the, 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 you know, and again, it's only San Marino, but the third, was it, goal he scored against San Marino where he beat a couple of players and opened his body up and slotted it in the bottom corner. No, it's a good goal against any team. That, that, that's quite interesting, and I wonder whether that might change his luck, for want of a better phrase, uh, in a Spurs shirt. If, if he's just playing slightly further forward and not worrying about dropping off and trying to create, he might, you know, 
to use, to use the cliche, one might go in off his backside and suddenly then it starts to feel quite different, doesn't to it? To be fair, he is in a, in, a, in a much more creative team with England than Spurs at well, the that moment. Well, that is definitely but, true. But, the, you know, I, when I was trying to measure what this might mean for him, I thought about what would Antonio Conte think about Harry Kane's last week? And of course, I think he'll be delighted. He's got two relatively unphysical games uh, back under his belt. So there's, you know, he's keeping up, improving hopefully his level of fitness. And those seven goals can only have done him good. And hopefully we'll see some of that in the next few weeks. Let's let's move on, if we may, to this game against Leeds United. Now, I'm looking at you two here as experts because I think this is a very difficult game not to talk about because that's what we're paid to do, but to actually uh, analyse because you've got two very odd teams here, haven't you? You've got Spurs who've been consistently mediocre and Leeds who've been consistently dot, 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 beaten, whether they played well or not. First of all, do we know anything about Christian Romero's injury, Jack? Is he, is he liable to, to be playing? I don't have a latest on that. I know that what, he, he pulled up with a thigh injury, didn't he, in Argentina's mm-hmm. game the other day and is now, I imagine that he's probably mid-air as we record this on Thursday morning. But it would be, I mean, obviously he's been, you know, he's a fantastic signing, looks very important to the way that Conte wants to play. And, uh, yeah, it would be a real blow if he's not in the team this Saturday and beyond. Just to say as well, I watched the game between uh, Argentina and Brazil just for, for, for my own entertainment. There was very little entertainment. The most entertaining moment came and he really is mad for a scrap, isn't he, Christian? He put Vinicius Jr., currently the most dangerous of the Brazilian forwards, into the uh, into the hoardings, and then did that thing where he's committed the foul, then stands over the over the prone the prone body of his victim, complaining about him not getting up quick enough. <laughs> and that was early in the game, and it caused the Brazilians to be very very upset for about ten minutes. Afterwards, a lot of finger pointing, and you're going to get your son. Presumably, he was saying he's saying some, something along the lines of, uh, "Sorry about that, old chap. Let's just get on with the game." Yeah, really, really. Draw a hand up there. <laughs> he did the same to Lanzini, <laughs> didn't he? In that game, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that game where Tottenham lost and played really badly. Yeah. Well, how did Lacelso do? I didn't watch the um, game. I would say he, he was. It was one of his. He's not. He wasn't quite as closely connected to Lionel Messi as as he as he usually is. In fact, it was a game where the creative players, none of them did very well. It was, it was a slogging match in midfield where someone like uh, DePaul, who now plays for Atletico Madrid, was the standout player because oh, he, yeah. he could do more closing down and clogging in, in the middle of the pitch. The Celso was fine. He, he looks more confident playing for Argentina. That's the point. He looks like he's not afraid to make a mistake. And sometimes I think with Spurs, he's, he's, he's second-guessing himself. So what kind of let's let's say Christian Romero's fit? What kind of team do you think Conte will 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 pick? You mean the, the usual gang that we've become used to so far? Well, I think at some point he will change the team that we've seen so far to introduce more creativity. I'm convinced of that. Obviously, there's different ways he can do that. He could bring in Ndombele into the midfield. He could change the system away from the sort of 3-4-3 into a, maybe a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-1-2. He could bring in Lo Celso and Falucas. He could play Lo Celso or Ndombele as a 10 in a different system. But I think one of those, I'm not sure exactly which one, and I don't know if, it is, if this will happen this time or if it will come later down the line. But at some point soon, we are going to see uh, an introduction of some more creativity into that Spurs team. You do wonder if having spent two weeks on the training ground with Ndombele uh, during his international break, whether that right. might be the moment maybe for him to be thrown in. But he generally has seemed to prefer... The South side played probably more minutes in those first two matches, didn't he? Yeah. Just about. So, I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe that gives him the edge. But I guess the fact that he's been away for uh, quite a big chunk of it. I mean, we've all, you've already mentioned the Celso. There is somebody. I mean, actually, it's very odd that the the Spurs fringe players 
um, have done very well in the international break. Lo Celso continues to be part of an Argentinian team that, that gets better and better. Joe Rodon was very, very good for Wales. And Steven Bergwijn, who I, again, I watched that game from start to finish for various reasons, the game between Holland and Norway. Bergwijn, I would have taken him off after 60 minutes. But that's, of course, that's why Louis van Gaal gets the big bucks. Um, and I don't because he scored a fantastic finish. It wasn't... That was a great know, finish. He smashed it. I love that Smashed finish, it yeah. past the fella. Reminiscent, I think, was it was Shearer against Holland all those years ago at Wembley? Yeah. I mean, it's a, the kind of finish you wouldn't really expect of a player who I, I guess we kind of see as not being especially confident at the moment. Yeah. But the way he's hit through that ball... I mean, the keeps got absolutely no chance. You know, in a massive moment oh, in the actually, game, where, and a huge game for the, Holland, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he, he actually made the second. People would expect Bergwijn to be super fast. I don't think he is super fast. I think he's fast, but he's not super fast. But he did enough to keep ahead of the Norwegian defenders. And I, I mean, I guess if he was super confident, he would have taken it himself. But he squared it for Depay to score from, of course, a much more difficult angle, as is often the case. That the person who should score so, um, gives his uh, gives his colleague a much more difficult thing to do. But I'm wondering, you know, Antonio Conte presumably takes a few minutes out from these double sessions at Turkey Street, as I still call the training ground, because... Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the nearest yeah. Yes, because it, it, it is, in fact, half of the old playing fields of the school my brothers used to go to, St. Ignatius. Spurs bought, bought oh, well. it from the Jesuits of St. Ignatius. If you go to the press conference, if you go to, let the readers in here, if you go to a press conference at uh, at Tottenham and you don't have a car like me, you have to get the overground to Turkey yep. Street, which is basically if you get the line that goes through White Hart Lane, you stay on it for another two or three stops. You get off at, Tur- you get off at Turkey Street, which is just a kind of, it's, just, it's basically in like distant suburban Enfield, yep. more or less. And then you... It's about a 25-minute walk along a kind of what's effectively a country path past this school, St. Ignatius, yep. uh, to get to the Tottenham Hotspur training Well, that, I mean, that school used to have a massive playing fields there and half it uh, still remains, but the rest of it is now the Spurs training ground. How did we get to this? Oh, we were talking about whether... Bergwijn. We're talking, yeah. we're talking about whether Bergwijn's yeah. going to come into the team. So my theory on this is that... Well, I think one of the reasons that he's been playing Lucas... In the first, in Conte's first two games, is because he wants the front three to press, and Lucas is a very energetic and enthusiastic presser, and he's really good at you know at, at that side of the game. Bergwijn could learn that, could get that into his game if he could integrate all that kind of pressing work that Conte wants to do. Then maybe Bergwijn could play on that place on the right of the front three instead of Lucas. It is a matter of coaching because when Bergwijn had a run in the team under Mourinho, he was equally energetic, but he's not. He, he wasn't pressing as far as I could. He was chasing. There's a slight difference. His positional play in the press was wrong. He always ended up on the wrong side of the person he was trying to press. And so while he was doing a lot of running, he wasn't helping the team with the press. But that, to me, it sounds like something you could teach people, you know, and apparently Conti's going to be this great teacher. James... What do you expect from Spurs against Leeds? Uh, and, and I said, I, I admitted when we started this, this is quite a difficult game to call in terms of what you might expect to see. So as you mentioned before, Leeds haven't really had a great start to the season, but I suppose the caveat to that is the same with Spurs. The manager is obviously a very good coach and has just had two weeks on the training ground with probably most of his players. I know like, a few would have been away. So, you know, I, I, I mean, your expectation of a spurs lead game in, in the year 2021 is probably be, it's going to be quite open, right? I mean... Mm. The way Leeds have genuinely approached approached matches since Bielsa's been there has been 
<laughs> basically every player on the pitch airing around constantly. See, and that really worked in Spurs' favour in the first game last season at White Hart Lane. And obviously they lost the second game 3-1 where I think that the same thing really worked against Spurs when they weren't probably weren't quite as fluent in their football and probably not quite as organised or motivated and suddenly it, it all kind of flipped and it didn't work out. But I, I, I think in this instance, an open game will probably work for Spurs and I wouldn't be surprised if Kane got what his second Premier League goal of the season and, and Spurs won the game. It, it helps their game to play against a side as, as aggressive as Leeds, I think. We look back to that Villa game before the previous international break, which is quite yeah. an open game. And I thought Spurs played pretty well, actually, um, against a... a, a Decent side, probably a side you say are about the same level as Leeds Villa, yeah. maybe. And being able to counter attack and move the ball forward quickly and yeah. not kind of be up against a packed defence really works in their favour. And I just can sort of see it being a similar thing on Sunday. If Son's got space to run into and behind, then Tottenham are in business. That's been the story of Tottenham for the last few years, really. I guess the only issue is if, if Leeds are so intense and aggressive that Tottenham can't really get the ball forward effectively enough. Maybe that suggests it is a game from Dombele because if Skip and Hoiberg are getting pressed too much, then Tottenham might get themselves into some difficulties in the middle of the pitch. But um, you know, Conte's paid a lot of money to to make these decisions, so hopefully, I'd love I'd like to see Dombele personally back in the midfield for this game and see if they can open open leads up a bit. He also has two kinds of games that he runs into, doesn't he? He either runs into games where he's uh, opposed by somebody who is part of his coaching tree, as they now say in America, people who have been influenced by the way he plays. Guardiola would be one of those. Of course, we've talked about Mauricio Pochettino in a while, but he would be another. There's a whole load of them. Or coaches who Bielsa has set out to try and undermine, i.e. people who are about uh, systems that he thinks he can break down by sheer running power and determination and doing occasionally slightly mad things. I think I'm right in saying that when Chile went so good under him at one time, he was playing three players under five foot ten at the back. Yeah. In order to try and play, you know, play the ball out even faster. Can you name them? Gary Medell was Gary one Medell of them for sure. Was the first one of now I'm struggling with Maurizio the other two. I- Isla. 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 Oh, is the played at the back yeah. as well? Boy, you boy, we're good, aren't we? Aren't we good? We're um, really clever. What about Charles Aranguis? I'd have to go and, was go and look he, it up. Did he play midfield rather than the back I just remember watching the, the team line. on television. And of course, you know, a lot of it was based again on monstrous... <laughs> Marcelo, if you're listening, yeah. <laughs> tweet us in. <laughs> on or... monstrous running power, um, as exemplified by the now almost forgotten... Uh, Sanchez, you know, who, who these days yeah, comes yeah. on for occasional cameo appearances at Inter Milan. Yeah, welcome back. You're listening to uh, the voices of me, Danny Kelly. James Moore is here, and so is Jack Pitbrook. And uh, Friday marks two years since the sacking of Maurizio Pochettino, an event that led to me actually, um, I'd say it, crying on air on national radio. There are, those things happen. Charlie Eccleshare, who uh, often shares the uh, Beautiful Lane podcast with us, has an article on this in The Athletic Today. And he poses the following questions, which I'll uh, throw to uh, James and Jack here as well. Cool, this is a painful one. James, with your Spurs hat on, were they right to sack him? Um... I kind I kind of actually sort of think yes, and this is this is what I said at the time, and I haven't necessarily strayed too much from it. In the in the moment, I think it was probably the right decision. Like I kind of think it had fallen away or fallen apart enough that bond between him and the players had probably worn away over time enough for it to be the right decision. However, had 
the decision, you know, the kind of decisions he wanted to be made had been made before, i.e., you know, recruitment and also the selling of players over the kind of two years prior to that, then things would obviously have been very different. So in, in those circumstances in that moment, yes, but what I actually think should have happened is they should have sold players and signed new players as he wanted previously. I'm going to be very boring and agree with James totally. I agree with everything James said. I think that... Thanks. They, I think that sack, the fact that they had to sack Pochettino was a disaster, you know, an absolute d- disaster that the Pochettino era was allowed to was was allowed to go so wrong and go so stale and curdle in the way that it did. Mixed metaphor. Um, that is a disaster of, of running of the club. If they'd sold all the players he wanted to sell in 2017 and in 2018 and in 2019 and got rid, of, you know, I'm talking about Delhi, Dyer. Toby, Ericsson, you know, we've done with Rose. We've talked about this a million yes. times uh, on this podcast. And if they'd done that and they'd brought in the new players and they'd refreshed the squad and they'd given po- Pochettino this like constant stream of new talent, then I think Spurs would have been in a completely different place in 2019 20. And Pochettino might well have wanted to stay. But given that they didn't do that, the position they got themselves into in November 2019, it was broken. Like, it was completely broken. I think Pochettino and his team saw it as a bit of a blessing to get sacked when they when they did. I also think that, you know, the Champions League, as well as the issue of, like, the, the staleness and the same players every season, etc., there's also the huge issue of the Champions League final. And, that's the, and that is that Mauricio convinced everyone at Tottenham on and off the pitch that they were going to win that Champions League final in a really kind of because you know what he's like and all his like motivational methods yeah. and the the breaking of the arrows on the neck and the walking on the hot coals. the lemons in the, he, in the in the office yeah, and all the rest in of a it. really kind of I, I i don't mean this in a piss takey way i mean in a genuinely like spiritual sense he convinced everyone it was their destiny to win the champions league final and then to lose it you know conceding that penalty after one minute mm-hmm. or whatever it was it just broke everyone's hearts yeah, it, broke, it completely shattered mine, Pochettino yeah, it shattered Pochettino because he thought, you know, we'll win it and then I can walk out as a hero or whatever. But it's just, that would be the perfect climax to the story. And that, you know, as as we've, you know, this has been widely reported in the past. After that final, you know, Pochettino went off. He was so upset. He went off to his house in Barcelona. He didn't speak to the players. He didn't come back to London with the, with the rest of the team or the board. And I think from that point, it was done. Yeah, it was dead uh, as soon as they lost that final. And at the risk of, of turning the podcast into a, a bore fest, I'm largely in agreement. I, I was horrified when he had to go because I was so personally attached to him. I just like the fellow. And, what, and, of course, what he'd done was was without criticism, really. The 7-2, was it 7-2 against Bayern Munich at home? I remember driving home. I was, I was coming back from the UK to Ireland when, when such things were easy before the pandemic and, and listening to the phone-in um, I didn't see the game. I was coming back from from work on something else. Listen to the phone in on the radio about what had been going on in that game. Um, it did keep playing in my mind, but surely every season Bayern beats at least one decent team by six or seven. That's just what they do. It's got eight against Barcelona at the end of the Absolutely. Season, right? and, and they're going to whack somebody by seven or eight in this Champions League as well, trust me. But that was the moment when I thought, it's just me personally, I've got no, I, I've got no in with Daniel Levy. This has now gone so far south so quickly and that was it the, the falling away which you could say the falling away in their form happened before the Champions League they had that dreadful run away from home and all of, and all of that but that night you just think and it's not like the 3-0 at Arsenal where you know I said you know outside of sack Nuno at half time I just thought this is falling away so quickly now something has to give and we all know in football clubs it's a simple equation isn't it you can't change the team 
so you have to change the manager. Um, I was laughing. I mean, it's time for you to do to do your your joke now. I think James, um, we were asking, we were asking. So, are Spurs over Maurizio Pochettino then? Uh, so, I mean, this is a, this is, this is, a po- this is a podcast that has done two episodes about Pochettino in one week. And this is the third uh, time uh, we've discussed him in depth in, in, in exactly, 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is yeah. no, isn't it? Probably not. No. Probably not. But I think that's the point, isn't it? That's the point yeah. in Charlie's piece, really, that Conte perhaps puts both the fans and the players, hopefully, in a position to kind of move on from that. Mourinho, for whatever reason, or for various reasons, different reasons probably for players and fans, didn't work, didn't do that. Nuno, possibly for slightly more obvious reasons, didn't do that either. But as Jack says, you know, in Conte, they've unquestionably got one of the best three, four managers in the world. I don't think any of those players could complain that the club hadn't shown ambition by bringing him in. And you, you sense there is a little, a little bit more kind of underlying positivity now, a lot more actually than there would have been kind of two or three weeks ago. I'll be very interested to see. This will be my first game on Sunday since, since Conte took over. Didn't even watch the other two on TV, actually. So it'll be very interesting to see not only how the team play, but how the fans react to that as well. Because obviously, you know, the Europa League game, the crowd would have been got capped. I think it was 30,000, I think it was, sorry, Conference League, sorry. Yeah. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Um, we aspire yeah, like, to, the, to the Europa exa- League. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, 30,000 people, I think, that were there for that game. So this will be, you know, for a lot of people, their first chance to kind of see his team in the flesh. So, and I th- yeah, I, I'm, I'm ex- I like excited, genuinely excited. I think it's the most excited I've been about going to a Spurs game for... Since the final? I mean, maybe. You know what? That's probably not... Given, you know, obviously we missed a year of matches. That's probably not wrong. I can't think of... Since the Metropolitano, this is the most excited you've been, yeah? I mean, I probably was quite excited about that Bayern game because it was the last... You know, it was like ticking off the last one on the list of us having played like... Yeah, and Madrid and Barcelona and Dortmund and whatever. No, no, but but, but I think... I I, I hope and I think that your optimism, uh, James, may well be reflected in the crowd as well. And I think it will be a very exciting home game for, for Spurs because uh, I, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, you analyse yourself. What is Conte? What is Mourinho? They are both hugely su- successful, well-respected managers who've won the Premier League, who've managed Chelsea. The, the, their CVs are in many ways quite similar. Um, they don't necessarily stay at clubs for very long lengths of time. And yet something about this Conte appointment, and I'm sure that as a, as a neutral in all this, that Jack can identify it, well, Conte's just more, so Conte's CV, I mean, the CVs are comparable, but Conte's achievements are just more up to date. You know, you could say, I mean, if Mourinho, by, by, by the time he got to Tottenham, Mourinho was yesterday's man, but Conte's very much today's man. You know, Conte is the best, has been, you know, when, when Mourinho was appointed at Tottenham in November 2019, I think he'd been on the decline well, since Real Madrid, which he left in 2013. We'd, he'd already you know, completely blown out a um, second time around at Chelsea and at Manchester United. So he was he was on the way down, whereas Conte is, I think, at the peak of his powers. So that's the difference, and that, really. And that's probably why I am feeling so. And, and even if even if it, if it does, sorry, very quickly, even if it doesn't go, because of course now I'm using this podcast as personal therapy, even if it doesn't go as well as I hope it goes on the pitch, the very fact that Purcell and James, and I, sus- I suspect a very large number of Spurs fans um, are getting some... It is bringing closure to the Pochettino thing. It is for me. And if it only achieves that to the mass psyche of Spurs fans, then Levy will have spent his money wisely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I've been thinking about this because it is, it is really hard to get, you know, to get over something like Pochettino. Like Pochettino was what? Spurs' best manager, Danny, for 30 years? Uh, what, since Birkinshaw uh, uh, or since longer? Since Birkinshaw, you, you, definitely that. Definitely that. 
Yeah. So for the lifetimes of, let's say, I don't know, half, more than half of the, of the Spurs fan base. Half of the Spurs fan uh, base on this podcast. Yeah. It just wouldn't know, you know, he's he's the best they've ever known. And so you can't get over stuff like that. It's like... But it's also to do with, his, it's also to do with, he, with how he did it, was it? His personality and the way he spoke and he's just engaging and all, and all those things. He, he did everything quote unquote the right way, didn't he? Like and, uh, in a footballing sense and yeah. in terms of like, uh, you know, man management and the way he kind of had everyone pulling in the same direction. Uh, it felt like a football club, a, a collective rather than just like, you know, a group of highly paid footballers yeah. and then it's the rest. Team. Yeah. It's but a, not, but a not real just team. the footballers, but the whole club. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It, it was such a unique moment to have everyone pulling in the same direction. And I just think because of how special he was, you can't expect people to get over that. You know, you can't just, but you can't expect people to forget about it and move on and draw a line under it. And I think a lot of, because that's not really how people work, particularly given, you know, how football fan, you know, the way that being a football fan is so much about shared memories and and, and that sort of thing. So, so I think in that sense, it's going to be, no matter how, you know, Conte can win the league. I think it'll be, I still don't think Tottenham will have moved on from Pochettino because Pochettino will always be part of Tottenham. That said, I think that, I think that having the whole like, having Pochettino as this kind of ghost at the feast type person was extremely difficult for Mourinho and Nuno just because they weren't as good as him. And they were being judged by the standards of Pochettino every day. And I don't know if they knew this themselves deep down or not, but I think the, the, the players did and the people at the club did and the fans certainly did. They just, you know, they weren't as good. They weren't as, the football wasn't as good. The coaching wasn't as good. They didn't form the same bond with the fans. And that made it very, very difficult for those two. And I, and my hope for Conte is that he is so good that he won't be judged negatively against the kind of Pochettino standard because that proved to be an impossible standard for Mourinho and Nuno to compete with. Charlie, in his piece, and we'll end this piece about Pochettino by saying, will he ever return? I think that question was absolutely central and emotionally engaging eight weeks ago, six weeks ago, four weeks ago, and now it just doesn't feel like an issue to me. If he does, brilliant. If not, and he spends all his time at other clubs and going to Salt Bay's restaurant, good luck to him as well. It's a bit like hoping your favourite band's going to get back together, isn't it? You know, people always hope, oh, is this going to be the year the Smiths come back and play Glastonbury? Or is this the year the Oasis are going to reunite? But um, I I don't know. Every every one of those gigs that you go to are rubbish, right? I saw Blur at Hyde Park in like 2009 and it and like having waited sort of fifteen years to see Blur, fucking rubbish. Yeah, I, I think the the key the key phrase there is Hyde Park, isn't it? Well, maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I saw Stone Roses at Finsbury Park in twenty thirteen, and <laughs> yeah, the musicians were good, good but Ian Brown's voice is uh, gone. I'm afraid. In terms of Pochettino coming back, like, well. I think it's now unlikely. I think it's unlikely right now. Like, not obviously yeah. they've got they've got Conte, but also I don't think like if, if we rewind back to kind of late May, early June when Tottenham were trying to get Pochettino back, and they were you know they were this was a real thing. They were really really trying. They were speaking to him. The plan was that Pochettino would come back, and things would kind of go back to how they were in 2019. You know, Pochettino would would be running it with Daniel Levy and keeping a very tight circle. And it was only when the possibility of Pochino coming back was shut down by PSG that Levy effectively went to plan B, which as it happened was getting in Paratici as managing director, general manager, and Conte as manager. And obviously Conte didn't accept that point, but that's now where they are. And so the thinking inside the club was always we either go like the Pochettino route or the Paratici plus a head coach route. 
And obviously that's where they've ended up. But I don't think... It was never really their thinking to get Prattigy and Pochettino because why would you get a manager who wants to run everything by himself as well as a general manager who would want to run everything? You know, it doesn't quite fit um, in politically. It was definitely what I wanted at the time, Pochettino yeah. coming back in the summer. But it, it, would have, it definitely would have not worked. I know. I've been I mean, exactly whether or not way. we would have been a point, whether or not we still would have been like in a position where we felt quite optimistic about it, you know, in, in November of 2021. Uh, who knows I think possibly yes but I, I think like over the course of a couple of years I think we would probably have like felt this wasn't quite as good and maybe this was a mistake I mean it, it is um, I mean I, I agree with you I, th- I think the same thing we human beings we're so nuts aren't we we want the Smiths we want the Smiths to reform knowing that they're going to fall flat on their face we just want it to happen let's we'll have another break and when we come back um, we'll talk about uh, where the Spurs squad is right now some interesting um, stuff in the Athletic this week about the age profile of Spurs' squad and what it means it could be an opportunity for them to be uh, instantly successful under Antonio Conte it could be you could argue they haven't made enough of the window of opportunity they've had with having two of the best forwards in the world in their squad. That's next. Interesting article in The Athletic this week about the age profile of Spurs' team. Now, we used to be very, very pleased. Here we go again to my Pochettino. Under Pochettino, when they were the youngest first eleven starting in the Premier League, well, that same group of players, give or take, has um, grown up now. And according to the piece, seven of the Spurs squad, and of the starting people really, sit at the peak age for players in their position. And very few of the other players are far away from it either. So there's an argument here, Jack, isn't it, that... that the Spurs squad, which has performed poorly for you know quite a while now, has got some potential in it statistically, as well as the evidence of your own eyes. He's a talented footballer. He's a talented footballer. He's a talented footballer. They're not over the hill. They're not callow. They ought to be malleable and in the right place physically and mentally, age group-wise, for Conte to get a tune out of them. Yeah, and I think that's why it was so important that they got Conte this summer because, yeah. oh, sorry, they got they got Conte the other week because this is a squad which is set up, I think, to compete right now. You know, it's not, I don't look at this squad and think, oh, they're going to be really good in four years' time, aren't they? Which, of course, is what we used to think back in 2015. Kane's 28, Son is 29, their Spurs are two best players. Lloris is fantastic, but he's not getting mm-hmm. any younger. So I think given that age profile of the squad, it made the most now is a really good time to have for Tottenham to have what you might call a win now coach like a Conte who yeah it's not he's not going to be in the job for four years but he might make Spurs very good for two or three years rather than getting I don't know Graham Potter who I admire hugely and saying oh well aren't we going to be really good in 2025 because by 2025 Lloris might be gone Son might have lost his pace Kane might not be the same player you know so I think in that sense it does perfectly underline the importance of getting Conte in right now to make Spurs competitive in the short term I mean that was kind of the thinking with Mourinho as well right that, that it yeah, was totally. kind of like the They've opportunity the to squeeze like the most as, uh, uh, the most as they could out of that group of players. Yeah, it, it was the right logic. It was, it was the right logic, but the wrong manager, basically. Yeah, I, I do think though you have to be careful with this now because while these stats are absolutely right, uh, the game, as always, it changes and uh, it changes quickly. 
I'm not so sure that um, experience is quite the, the thing it's, it's made out to be anymore because these young players coming through the academies, as I keep on saying, they have been coached since the age of 11 by, you know, you don't even know their names, but these are fantastic football coaches. The money that's being spent to educate these lads. And, you know, I would argue that Arsenal, and I hate to say this on the Spurs podcast, and I've got my fingers crossed so um, you can't shout at me, um, Arsenal are on the, on the cusp of becoming a, a, a very, very decent team. And the thing that's holding them back is their experienced players. Um, the two the two boys up front are, are you know, they're supposed to be at their peak, but Lacazette and um, uh, Aubameyang, they're just not there anymore. Whereas uh, the, the younger players, Gabriel, Tierney, Smith-Rowe, Saka, suddenly Arsenal, they arrive in the team, these teenagers now, as sometimes the best players in the team. Reese James, I know I know, people looked at me sideways and I said he's the best player in the Premier League in the last podcast. I have no reason to, to back down from that whatsoever. He's arrived fully formed as the best player in the team. So while I take the point about there are there used to be sweet spots for these things, I just think just be a bit careful um, with the way that we're churning these lads out of the academies now. What I do agree with is that there is only a limited window of opportunity for the Kane-Son partnership. You know, they did get to the Champions League final. Famously, anyone who's listening to me on the radio, I've only ever seen the first 50 seconds of that Champions League final as soon as the penalty was given. Um, I turned the mm. television off, and I've never watched it. And I will never watch it. I was so horrified. Wow. And that's what I mean. Pochettino was upset. I, I didn't even watch the blinking game once the penalty was given. When did you? you didn't when miss did much. you find out the, the final result? I was in uh, watching on television in a flat in Stoke Newington, right next door, um, on my own, right next door to a massive Arsenal pub called the Shakespeare. So I knew the result uh, because. Um, the cheering when Origi got the second goal told me that is not a Spurs equaliser. And then the party that ensued in the street outside where I was told me very clearly that Spurs had not won. No, I didn't know. I, Tim Pott. I checked 10 minutes after the game. I knew it would I knew it'd be completely over. But I knew from the party outside that... Uh, no, no, of course, I've always been blinking traumatised by Arsenal fans. That's what's happened to me. I mean, look, look at the husk of a man you Bad see before people. you. Uh, Jack, you know you don't you don't get to look like this because everything's gone and been a laugh. Trust me. Do you remember watching the 2006 Champions League final? Just out of interest. Uh, which one? Oh, the the uh, Arsenal yeah. one. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do. Um, what was your reaction when Lehman got sent off? Well, I've got to be very careful here. <laughs> were you out in the street? I had just I had really only just established um, the relationship that I'm in now, and she is an Arsenal season ticket holder. She had gone to Paris without a ticket or a hotel room and had managed to get both things and was at the game. It was quite early in the piece for the pair of us. And so I was kind of think, thinking about it, you know, that kindly way you do. Uh, but I wondered then whether or not it was going to be a last relationship. When, because when Lehman got sent off, I nearly hit the ceiling with excitement. I jumped out of a sofa. <laughs> and there's a lot of me to jump out of a sofa. And I thought, wow, you could have almost hit the ceiling there. And of course, there was the, the issue of, is Sol Campbell going to score the winning goal and all this sort of thing? Yeah, he didn't, I, I, though, I so. watched it, and I no, I, I, because of where I grew up, because uh, you know, in Islington, and because everyone I I love, um, I'm beginning to love you too, but it's not we're not there yet. Everyone I love supports Arsenal. Um, I have a, a weird relationship with their results. I have to be honest because uh, everyone's going to be miserable, and everyone was miserable as sin for about two months after that Champions League final. My favourite of those, of course, ever um, was that UEFA Cup final 
when which of the Spur ex Spurs Romanian players oh, Popescu, um, Popescu, Jacob got, Popescu, got yeah. the winning. I was in a bar in Paris that night with a lot. We had Naim in the Cup Winners Cup final as well. That was really good too. I was in, I was in a, a Turkish bar in Paris the night of that final for reasons too complicated to get and jet set to go into. And the Turkish people were very very nervous about the penalties. And I said to, to the guy I'd befriended during the course, he don't worry about Popescu. He is definitely going to score this penalty and win the trophy for you. How do you know? I said, I just know because of the connections of the cl- of these two clubs. So that was very good. Yeah. Jack, uh, one day you may want to talk me through the Champions League final, what happened after the penalty, because I've never seen it. I can't I can't remember anything from the game, really. I, I, but between the penalty and the second goal, I can, I, I, and Kieran Trippier ne- never tracking back. That, that's the only thing I can really remember from the game. Honestly, it was a really bad game. Yeah, yeah. It was a really, really bad game. It was... It was so hot. It was so hot for a what a nine pm yeah, local yeah. time kickoff. I think nine pm local time kickoff. It was baking, and I don't think the state like the particular like setup at the stadium helped. It was really tense. Liverpool are so good defensively because they had that was like before Van Dijk had his uh, you know, his bad knee injury. So Liverpool for, for Liverpool to score early was the yes, worst, the yeah. last thing the game needed because it meant they could sit back and defend. And Tottenham never really they had a few openings, but never really got going. And kind of nothing, like very, very, very little happened between the penalty and the Divock Origi goal at the end. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's why the penalty struck me. It, it was the injustice of it because it wouldn't have been allowed. It wouldn't have been given as a penalty in the, in the Premier League. But the point was, Liverpool were a better team than Spurs. Then let's not have any. Let's not be stupid about it. Spurs were pretty good. Um, not as good as they were two years beforehand, but they were a pretty good team. Liverpool were a much better team. So on the day, you needed everything to go Spurs' way. And to concede a penalty in the first minute told me that was not going to be the case. Well, this has been an interesting podcast, hasn't it? Because it's taken <laughs> us down two young men. I thank you so much giving some kind of therapy to a much older chap about the trauma of the Champions League final. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I think if we, you know, in, in uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years' time, people will still be doing Spurs podcasts, I imagine. Well, there'll only be one. There'll, there'll be, only be like, this and, one by then. We'll, we'll have smashed the others. And every conversation will come back to... 2019 Champions League final and yeah they shouldn't have had to sack him but they didn't sell the players at the right time and Danny Kelly didn't even watch yeah. it by the time they started the 2019-20 season things have gone too far and that's you, why you maybe the right be time to sack that. him you'll be the grey haired version of yourself and I'll be watching it from the care home <laughs> it's like in the same way that people will be arguing about you know people will be talking about like Brexit or Trump or whatever oh. in 50 years time like this is just such a this is that whole kind of period and the issues related to it are just the so crucial in like an understanding modern Tottenham and their history and their mm-hmm. direction what they're trying to achieve and how difficult it is and all the rest of it as well as everyone's everyone invested so much emotion into that time and you see people obviously everyone's been discussing Pochettino on Twitter in the last in the last few weeks and I've seen a number of people tweet something like that time and I, you know you guys will be able to speak to this better than me but saying things like that time from Lucas Moura's winner in Amsterdam to the penalty in the Metropolitano mm-hmm. six weeks later or whatever it was was the best time to be a Spurs fan ever like that that kind of spell in between the Ajax win and the final it did it, I mean even as an outsider it, it felt like Tottenham was the center of the universe it was a lovely thing oh well never mind no i don't take that view i, I think the, I, I try and see the glass half full and nothing nothing is ever a straight line and with the stadium with the training ground with antonio conte and with some investment in footballers, let's not kid ourselves, it could be just as likely jack no not just as likely but possibly that we'll look back on the 2019 disaster as a springboard 
Um, the trauma that just to the twenty twenty three success. Yeah, well, I, I hope that's right. We, <laughs> there, I mean, let's be fair. You, the, 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 that would be a great springboard of emotional negativity to come bouncing back from, and we shall see. Maybe starting at Leeds. Uh, sorry, at Dwight Hart Lane against Leeds at the weekend. It's been a blast. Thank you both very, very much indeed. I, I like the fact that. Um, uh, since I, I mean, I, I like working on this podcast because I, I, I don't know where they're going to go. Um, we have a guide, we have a guide script, but of course, uh, it, like all the best things in life, it is the tributaries that you find yourself sailing up uh, occasionally that bring all the most pleasure. Now, listen, if you've not already, if you're not already a subscriber, you can read all the athletic articles on Spurs by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now, you can sign up with a 33% discount on a full subscription. I'll also be able to access all of our podcasts advert-free. We're back on Monday. Uh, thanks to Jack and James for being here for the last little while. And thank you all for listening. Cheers now. The Athletic.